Please turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2 this morning. A short, quick update on our acoustic resolution uh, saga. We're adding speakers and uh, enhancing our system. That just will take a little while for those parts, those, those parts we've ordered to come in and have them assembled. But that will make uh, really an even more marked improvement than just the acoustical treatment that we have on the ceiling. So that will be coming very soon. Just want you to be aware of that to improve the audibility of what is being said here. I'm also trying to learn to talk slower. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying that hard, but I'm trying uh, as best I can. With that, let's look at God's holy inspired word, Titus chapter 2. We are continuing in the instructions given to the different groups in the church. First, the older people in the church and then the younger people in the church. Just two really wide divisions spoken of here by Paul to Titus. You remember that Titus has been left there at Crete to set things into order that needed to be set in order. And the first priority was to assign or appoint elders, uh, qualified men to shepherd the flock there in the church. Uh, Then he tells Titus what things must be taught to the people in the church there. And he gets very specific because really at the heart of what Titus is to do is to make an application of God's word clear to the people. Doctrine would be taught and then those things which accord with sound doctrine, they go along with sound doctrine, those things would also be taught, how to live out the scriptures. Very important to the Apostle Paul as he tells Titus how to set things into order. And we are in the midst of a section of teaching uh, pointed towards the older people in the church and the younger people. And of course, those two groups integrate and interact. So I will begin by reading, starting at verse 3 of Titus 2. Our focus, however, will be verses 5 through 8 this morning. Hear God's word. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your holy word. I thank you for its clarity. I thank you for how it it confronts us and how in so many ways to our own shame in this culture, it's counterculture. And I pray that we would find ourselves aligned with your word, Lord, rather than the culture. Help us, Lord, based on obedience, to be salt and light in this world, that we might see an actual reverse in the trend of our day because people on an individual basis, on a family basis, and a church basis, seek to live according to your eternal truth because it's true. The grass does wither, the flowers do fade, cultures come and go, but the word of our God stands forever. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sound doctrine must be matched with behavior that brings glory to God. That's the overriding theme, really, even of the book itself. Doctrine and duty. What is true and what to do. Why doctrine is so practical, so livable, so important for us. 
Now, before we go into the specific instructions here, let's acknowledge that there are many philosophies or isms that affect our thinking whenever we look at anything, especially a passage in Scripture. Even as a pastor, I recognize when I'm going to speak on something from God's Word that will not be accepted by the culture at large. I can tell. Uh, There are several isms you might be aware of. How about modern humanism? Uh, The belief that mankind has all the answers. Human wisdom is all we need for our problems and to advance our race. This diametrically opposes itself to the scriptural idea that without him, we can do nothing. That it's the glory of God, not the glory of man, that is the end goal for all existence. How about existentialism? You wonder what that big word is, existence-ism. That is the belief that existence, our being here, is all that really matters. And if you believe that, then you will strive after all manner of sensory experience, things to try out and do. Because existence is all there is. Existentialism. People live like there's no tomorrow. Eat or drink for tomorrow we die. That's existentialism. That directly opposes. Scripture says what we bind on earth is bound in heaven and that there is an eternal view. And what we do here is just a small portion of our whole existence and that eternity lasts for much longer than the 70, 80, maybe 90 years we may live on this earth. Postmodernism. These are all isms that when we read Scripture can taint us just a bit or change our lens if we're not aware of them. Postmodernism basically says what is true for you is not necessarily true for me. If there is truth, it probably can't be known. Whereas Jesus said, thy word is truth. Sanctify them by that word. Proposition after proposition of truth in scripture. Jesus himself is the truth. Feminism. There are many strands, but basically what we see today in its most radical form and in a form that affects the media greatly, that women are inherently equal to men and deserve equal rights and opportunities. That's the beginning of the movement. But it has evolved into a liberation of women from anything about men. The more radical form rejects social constructs that, in their mind, the radical feminist mind, subjugate women to men in any way, and that includes marriage. Do away with that, is what the radical feminist says. And even if you're not the radical feminist mind, there's definitely a lowering of any kind of division that there might be in a marriage relationship. Male chauvinism, another ism that we see through often. It's a belief that males are somehow superior to females versus the biblical mode for marriage, which also confronts feminism. It teaches that a man and a woman are equal in essence, that God gives different specific roles. But in male chauvinism, the idea that a husband somehow rules over his wife with an iron fist is meant by the scripture where we are told, like Jesus lays his life down for the church, so the man, the husband, should lay his life down as a servant, as a sacrifice, if if need be, for his wife. The Bible confronts all sorts of modern isms, and it's important. And I would suggest to you that the only ism all of us here should be concerned with is the glory of Godism. That's the ism we ought to be concerned with. The belief that man's chief end is the glory of God and to enjoy him forever. And notice what I said. 
the glory of God and to enjoy him. That is when we seek after the glory of God, follow his will, we'll also have joy, we'll also have contentment, we'll also have satisfaction. And I don't mean that we won't have problems. I don't mean that it will all be utter peace all the time. But following God's will is what grants ultimately joy and contentment and satisfaction in this very short life that we live on earth. Do you want joy? Do you want contentment? Meaning, God's way provides these things. And seeking after God's glory will actually benefit you and your relationships. What is God's rule that we might glorify and enjoy him? Kids know? Kids, what is God's rule that we might enjoy him? What is it? It's the scriptures. Very simply, it's the scriptures are God's rule that we might glorify and enjoy him. So we go there, not to Oprah. We go there, not to The View. We go there, not to the television or the movies or the internet. We go to the Word to find out what it is we need to live and be guided by. There are many places where Scripture will confront these false systems and philosophies. Many places where Scripture will fly in the face of cultural norms. And the text before us is clearly no exception. The Bible's straightforward teaching about younger women and younger men would not play well in the media today. But God's truth, God's plan, the way for us to have real joy and instruction is what we need to bring glory to God and is ultimately what the culture needs from the church, whether it knows it or not. Sound doctrine should be matched with behavior that brings glory to God. Let's look at the text together and see how this is so, specifically in our lives and in the lives of younger people in the church. First of all, notice verse 5 and verse 8 that I have just read. We see that lives that match biblical teaching bring glory to God. First notice that such lives that are obedient or comply with the word of God and what is being taught, they prove the word of God or they give it credibility in the larger culture itself. Verse 5 says, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Notice the last phrase that the word of God may not be reviled. You see, there's a a showing of God's glory that happens when critics cannot blaspheme it because it's actually being lived out by those who say they believe it. Uh, There's an effect of God's glory just by the obedience of the people of God to the word of God. So do these things, live these things, so that the word of God may not be blasphemed. You know and I know full well, because we're all hypocrites to some degree, But hypocrisy, the pattern or practice of hypocrisy by the church, causes people to curse God. And as we live in compliance with the word of God by his grace, then we can bring glory to God. Such lives prove the word of God. You know and I know, and it's happened recently, when a preacher rails against particular sins constantly, then is shown to be a slave to that very sin himself, it causes damage to the witness of the church. But notice also in verse 8, you see that it's true that lives that match biblical teaching bring glory to God. This is kind of the preface or the underlying idea behind these points of doctrine and obedience. Such lives, obedient lives, give God glory before the world. In verse 8, part of the instruction to younger men, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Verse 5, may not be reviled. Verse 8, cannot be condemned. That is, the opponents of the church, of God, of Christ, cannot justifiably condemn us because we're living out what it is that our Savior's told us to do. It's not condemnable. Verse 8 continues that, so an opponent may be put to shame. That is, that they're, they're silenced 
us having nothing evil to say about us. So this verse 8 and verse 5 show us that we bring glory to God by obedience, and it's, if for nothing else, we silence the critic and give a showcase to the active work of God in the lives of people who are broken, and everybody knows it. It's not that people look at us and say, oh, they're perfect. No, they say, hey, they're broken like us, and God is doing something special in them. Lives that match biblical teaching bring glory to God. With that in mind, think of the picture of Jesus. When he's on the cross and you have the centurion looking up and saying and confessing what? Surely this is the Son of God. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. The centurions who had cross duty were the most brutal of all the centurions. I mean, these are hardened guys. I mean, to get cross duty where you are at the top of the hill, where you pound the nails in and you pierce the side of and you break the legs of those people being crucified for that hardened individual to know the fame of Christ or to know his reputation to see him on the cross witness what happened while he was on the cross and be able to look up to him and say surely this is the son of God is it not true that to some degree the church should mirror Christ and that the world should say surely this is the church Sound doctrine should be matched with behavior that brings glory to God. Now let's dive in to specific instruction, continuing now to the younger people in the church. For the glory of God, I'll preface it that way, for the glory of God, younger women are instructed in several ways. First, to be teachable. Starting at verse 3, diving back into the text we studied already, notice what it says. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves of much wine. They are to teach what is good. So we understand that they are to be the, in the action of teaching, older women in the church, but it also has to imply that there is a teachableness in the younger women. There is a receptivity in the younger women to receive the experience of an older woman in their life and to apply it. Now, I received all sorts of comments, kind of of thanks and kind of of warning from the ladies in the church last two weeks ago that I didn't say how old an older woman in the church is. No less than five came up to me with a mixture of thanks and warning. Now, I want to say to you, I want to say to you that I'm only going to say what the Word of God says. Very simply, an older woman is, a, is one who is beyond child-rearing days. Doesn't mean child-bearing days, but child-rearing days. And I take this vaguely anyways from 1 Timothy 5.9. Listen to what it says. Timothy is being advised on how to take care of the widows in the congregation. And listen to what it says in 1 Timothy 5.9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. In other words, he instructs women who are under 60 and widows to be remarried. And then he instructs those who are over 60 to be enrolled in a certain number so that the deacons can take care of those widows in the church. That typically is believed to be, by commentators, kind of a dividing line that basically describes where in that culture women stop rearing their own children in their own home. So basically, we're talking about women who are no longer rearing their own children, now freed up in many senses to help others with that duty, with that action, with that ministry. So this is what we mean. Just like older men were in their upper 50s and early 60s, based on the attestation of the first century, it's a similar age frame for women in the church. So younger women being still in that age where they could be rearing their own children, older women who are past that stage. Now, I hope I avoided that well enough. Let's move on. In all seriousness, one of the great pictures of this happens with Elizabeth and Mary. You remember it in the scripture. Well, there's not a huge age gap between these two women, but there's an experience gap, no doubt. 
Listen to just a little bit of the story, and this gives us a picture of this kind of spiritual mothering that is being spoken of here in the text. In Luke 1, 39 and following, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste, she found out she was pregnant, into the hill country, into a town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me? The mother of my Lord should come to me, Mary says. For behold, when the sound of your greetings came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Do you see the spiritual interchange between Elizabeth and Mary, an older woman with a younger woman? Elizabeth was special because she wasn't out of her child bearing days at all. But she was an older sister in the Lord and was able to mother Mary in an encouraging way, in a spiritual way. It wasn't just empty talk or gossip or any number of things that any of us could be prone to. It was serious, deep discussion about spiritual things. It's a great picture of how older women and younger women should relate. Susan Hunt writes a tremendous book called Spiritual Mothering, and she says this, spiritual mothering is when a woman possessing spiritual maturity enters into a nurturing relationship with a younger woman in order to encourage and equip her to live for God's glory. Please notice it doesn't tell the pastor to have this relationship with young women. In fact, that's a a veiled warning in my mind. But rather, older women must take up this mantle. They, They don't have a choice. They must take up this mantle of teaching and training. For the glory of God, younger women are also instructed, verse 4 and 5, not just to be teachable, but also to love their household. In fact, all of verse 4 and verse 5 relates to their primary calling in life to love and nurture and advance their household. Look at verse 4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Uh, That's, by the way, in a particular order, sisters. Love your husbands, number one. Your children, number two. It's not a child-centered home. It's a home based on the marriage God has brought together centered on Christ. Love your husbands first and your children second. This is the order that God gives us, and it's an important order for sure. Be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Susan Hunt says also in her excellent book, We must not allow the voices of the world to set the agenda for this decade. Nor must we allow these voices to teach women how to be women. I feel like saying to the culture, how's that working for you? How is it really working? I mean, all the talk of liberation. It's done more harm to womankind than it's done help. So we go to the word of God, which is timeless. A woman's priority is herself. That's what's said in the culture. A woman's priority is her job. That's what's said often in the culture, her hobbies, her leisure. If that's the case, if a woman's priority is herself or her job, her hobbies, her leisure, the family will be in disarray no matter what a husband does because it's not God's design. When a woman puts her husband first and her children second, it has the effect of an incredible nurture and promotion of godliness that cannot be matched in any other way. The way a woman loves her household is set forth in the text. First of all, it says that she practices self-control. And you'll notice, if you remember back to the verses we've already studied, that older men and older women and elders in the church, self-control is consistently given as a trait or an attribute that we are to live out. It's also a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. 
given by the Spirit of God, acknowledged to be supernatural because human beings don't have it on their own. Restrained, disciplined, a sound mind, not given over to passion, sober, discreet, very specifically, particularly, self-controlled in what she eats, what she drinks, what she spends, uh, what she views on the television, uh, what she says on the phone, or what she chats about online. And I would just say very uh, bluntly, as you see the next portion, she practices purity, that she's chaste, she's pure in heart, she's free from defilement, she loves her husband only, she's modest, uh, she's wary of relationships outside of her husband. And very bluntly, it's very dangerous when home and alone to spend any time chatting with anybody on anything, especially the computer. Makes no sense. Woman shouldn't do it. A man shouldn't do it. You wouldn't have a discussion with someone off in a restaurant with someone of the opposite sex. Why would you do it online? And if I didn't have dozens of examples of where this went terribly wrong, maybe I'd say it differently. She practices purity. Her primary labor is working at home, managing the household, keeping the family stead is what it means by worker at home. This means that her primary ministry, her primary outlet is to manage the household. She's not idle, but she's busy managing it. Now, let me be very, very clear here. It's not saying that a woman cannot work outside the home. It's not what it's saying. So long as it does not interfere with her responsibility to keep that home, to manage that home, it is possible for a woman to work outside the home. It ought to be done in great caution because if you're not advancing the cause of your household, you're advancing the cause of someone's household. So just be clear on that. But there may be the opportunity for that. In fact, we have to acknowledge it biblically because in Proverbs 31, describing the, the godly woman, it says she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. Well, she's got to go to the field to buy it and consider it. So she's leaving the home to do it. You can't just say a woman can't work outside the home. It doesn't say that in the Bible. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. But two principles don't contradict. And so to do this, it's to build up the home. It's to nurture the home. That's why someone would do that. And husbands, we need to be very careful not to put our wives in a position where they have to. That's our responsibility. The text goes on. She is kind. Simply put, she's good. That is, she's gracious towards those in need. Uh, she's voluntarily responsive to needs. I have often been amazed by my own wife's gifts and abilities in this way that I have to admit, I often don't have. I'll see oftentimes many meals being made, and maybe a few of them directly do I get to taste. And that's good, because I can't taste them all. I'd be in trouble. But what I mean is she's constantly making meals for other people and trying to find ways to do things for other people outside of our household from the place of our household. It's kind of our mission outpost to help people in the church or to bless people in the church. And I think there's a specific wiring uh, that God gives to a nurturing person who is a woman who is ministering through her home this way. And I think that she can really have an effect, a powerful effect on the overall community by using these gifts. She's kind. She's submissive to her husband. She's meaning that she's his helpmate. She's essentially his promoter. This is not an obscure biblical teaching, by the way. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
Colossians 3, verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. And 1 Peter 3, 1, most vividly, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So there's an assumption that the husband's not going to be all that oftentimes. But as the wife fulfills the role God's given, God will actually use that godliness to change his heart, to melt him, to cause him to do what he ought to be doing, which is to lay his life down for his wife. But you can have that much impact, that much effect on someone, ladies, if you do what God tells you to do despite how they are. They may be mean to you, but as you do it, God breaks their heart. God changes them. They may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, it says in 1 Peter chapter 3. As she follows the lead of the husband, it softens his heart. And if it, his heart is already soft, it's going to advance him, which will advance the family. She is his promoter. Proverbs 31 verse 11 says, The heart of her husband trusts her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. He does, she doesn't disrespect him behind his back. She supports him. She encourages him and gives him great confidence. Later in Proverbs 31, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. I'll tell you what, last week when all the elders were standing here and we were saying the dedicatorial words and prayer, I had to just think of all of us, nine of us. What do we all have in common, brothers and sisters? You know what it is. Every one of us married way, way up. And as I thought about how faithful these men have been in my life, in our church's life, I realized that it has only been possible because of the extreme support of their wives, their extreme participation and sacrifice of their wives. And just how they, just as the text says, that they're able to sit in the city gates uh, with a certain level of respect, it's because of what those women have done in our lives. And I know this is true across our church's life, not just among the officers of the church. I praise God every day for faithful women that God has so blessed us with. I think of Hannah in the scripture. I think of Esther. I think of Mary and Priscilla. These are certainly women the Spirit of God used mightily in major ways in the life of the church and the transformation of the world around them. It doesn't stop, though, with the younger women in the church. It also speaks specifically to the younger men in the church. Uh, first, what does it say? Verse 6, likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. Yet the fourth time, we are told to be self-controlled. And there is specific ways this applies to women and applies to men. As far as application goes, I want you to just think of what men are so prone to. Youth for a man can be a dangerous time, full of passion, full of ambition, full of confidence, full of appetites. Self-control is of utmost importance in these years. I don't know, maybe you saw a few weeks ago there was a baseball game where one of the better players in the San Diego Padres ran out a hit was on first base, was standing on first base. The referee apparently was needling him throughout the game, you know, something he shouldn't have been doing. But he starts jawing at the, the, umper, the, the referee, and they're standing at first base, jawing at each other. Start, it looks like they're going to fight. This guy's out of control. The guy who hit the ball is on first base. Whether the guy's right or wrong for saying it, he's out of control. So his assistant coach jumps out, grabs him to restrain him so he doesn't go after the ump. And what happens? He tears his ACL and his right knee in the process of being restrained. Six to 12 month recovery for this. For what? He just needed to ignore the guy. Let's say a word. But the lack of control for him cost him a serious injury. Most men here can think of one or two times in their life, or five or six. 
where they, after the fact, said, I cannot believe I didn't control myself just a touch more. Whether it was at work, whether it was something you said to your child, whether it's something just you and yourself and you hit something. In an x-ray later, or a broken arm, or whatever else embarrassing thing that happens, you realize self-control would have avoided this whole thing. Younger men, be self-controlled. We can be prone to volatility. We can be compulsive at times, arrogant at times, overconfident, prideful. A false sense of invincibility plagues us as men often. Self-control is needed in all of these areas, particularly for young men. And think of all the various temptations one might have in this stage of our lives. It is so necessary that these things work together, our wives, our community, our time with the Lord to give us and grant us self-control. And God will give you self-control as his child. Sometimes the way he gives it to us, though, can be hard and can be disciplined. But for the glory of God, younger men are instructed to have self-control. But also look at verse 7 and verse 8. Is It uses a similar word that is used earlier for the older women in the church to be a model for others. Verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. It cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Look what it says, though, a model, which is typos is the word, a prototype, a model for others to look at, an example, a pattern to be imitated. First Timothy, in the fourth chapter, 12th verse, Paul tells the young pastor, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. It's true that over time, an older man will develop these things, or I should say, God will develop these things in an older man where it becomes more the pattern of their life. But it doesn't excuse younger men from walking down this road of training, from starting to practice this in youth, in living it out. He says to Timothy, you can do this. It's all implied that it's only with the power of God. It's a fruit of the Spirit that's given. Young men are to be a model of integrity. I think this is specifically said to young men because they are in the, in the business sector so often, in the marketplace, interacting with uh, believers and unbelievers alike, and the opportunity for a lack of integrity is always there. So they're to be models of integrity as young men so that they can be entrusted with more as they become old men. Incorruptibility. They can't be bought with money or influence. They don't become known as someone who can be leveraged with stuff. They're not an admixture of shadiness. There's a purity in their example. People know when they hear that man's name that he cannot be bought, he will not cheat, he will tell you what is true, and he'll be good to his word. That's what a young man is called to be in Christ, to bring glory to God. But also young men are to be a model of dignity. That's what it says in the text. There is an undoubted devotion to God about them. They can joke around and have fun like everyone they ought to, But at the end of the day, there's an understanding that there's a seriousness about them, about the eternal truths that are in our lives. And they can be be referred to for such answers in such times. There's a gravity to their worldview that sees eternity. I'm not always a fan of all the the, the people that I look to in this regard, but I can tell you when I I see someone like J.I. Packer or Billy Graham, I think of people in their older years, for what I may disagree with the details, I think of dignity when I see those individuals. 
I think of one who's carried themselves with a level of self-control, with a level of uh, integrity that everyone acknowledges. And I say, that's what I want to be like. That's what I want to be like when I get older. Young men are to be practicers of sound speech. You know the word sound is used four times prior to it being used here? They're to practice sound speech. Sound simply means healthy or wholesome. They speak in a way that imparts grace to the hearers. When people hear that person speak, what they say has long-lasting spiritual significance. It's conversation that has uh, discipleship capability, helps them to grow closer to their God through Christ. When I think of men in the scriptures like Joseph in the epic in his life, David in a particular epic of his life when he was so close to the Lord, even in his acknowledged sinfulness, Daniel when he stood like he stood, Timothy, this young pastor, young men are to be practicers of sound speech. Sound doctrine, my brothers and sisters, should be matched with behavior that brings glory to God. By way of considering review now, we've studied eight verses in the first in the second chapter of Titus. Older men, models of mature spirituality, sober-minded, dignified, industrious servants of God to the very end. Older women, reverent, not slanderous, using their time well, actively mentoring younger women in the church. Younger women, they love their husbands and their children. They're promoters of their home. They're home-focused. They're building in, investing into the home. They have self-control that they have learned through mentoring they've received in the scripture they study and read and the spirit of God in them. They're resourceful, younger men, self-controlled, passion that is in check, practicing integrity, learning dignity. Why, brothers and sisters? Very simply, all for the glory of God, which will actually bring joy and satisfaction to us. Praise God for him being so clear and blunt with us in this way. May we apply this to our lives, that our lives would show accordance with sound doctrine too. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this day that you have made. I thank you for the clarity of your word. I thank you for the direction it gives. We need it so desperately. We need to be reminded of it. Pray that we would live it out. Pray that the world would be changed because your church is revived and reformed according to scripture. And I pray that it would start right here, just in our fellowship, and make its way out beyond these walls and into the world for your glory and the advancement of King Jesus' name on this whole earth. pray this in his name. Amen.